0: Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached.
1: For the past couple of weeks, we've been uh, talking about being under construction and um, saying that just as this building is under construction, you might have noticed as you walked in, there was some building rubble on the side there and the, the school is re- they're actually going to extend the, the hall that way, build it up, build the shell, and then eventually break down the back wall of of the current hall and, and the hall going to be a bit bigger and then make some new, nice new, um, on the side. But just like this hall is under construction, we as individuals are under construction, constantly under construction. We as a community are under construction and a construction site is a bit messy. And, um, so we, you know, because we're talking about being under construction, we decided to, to, um, to um, do it from the, the book of Nehemiah. So, um, those of you who have your Bibles here, you're welcome to open with me so long uh, in the book of Nehemiah. In a moment, I'm going to read for you from. Uh, We're going to actually play the audio Bible from Nehemiah 3. You know, when I first read this portion, I thought, how on earth am I going to preach from this chapter? <laughs> you know, how am I going to do a sermon from this chapter? But. Um, you know, there's always more in the Word of God than we realize, um, and, and something more powerful. So I want you, as, as we listen to this portion, I want you to listen out for three things. Listen who's doing the work. Listen to the variety of people doing the work, because they're building the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah's leadership. Listen to who's doing the work, listen to how they're doing the work, and then think a bit, and, and maybe listen to why they're doing the work, if you, if you think you can, you can find that. So, Nehemiah 3.
0: Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The Fish Gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasenaah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The gate was repaired by Joedah, son of Paseah, and Meshullam, son of Besidei. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon, and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house. And Hatash, son of Hashabniah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Heshab, son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Shalem, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakerim. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of colonel Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam, by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Beth-zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David. As far as the artificial pool, in the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Raham, son of Benai. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kila, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Binuai, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half district of Kila. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the Angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Meramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hachaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Masiah. The son of Ananiah made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binuai, son of Hanadad, repaired another section, from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedahiah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate, toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section. From the great projecting tower to the wall of Othel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Amer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalath, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshallam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs.
1: Now, um, I think you can see easily why I didn't read that portion myself. I mean, those names are like this. (laughs) <laughs> these long names, and you're probably thinking the same thing, you know, I, I thought when I first read this scripture, I'm mean, going how on earth are you going to preach this portion of scripture, I and mean, what is there in the, in the scripture um, to preach, and um, like I said, I'm going to look at two, three things, who did the work, how they did the work, and why they did the work, and I think there are a few very powerful and important things uh, that we can look at. Last week, um, we did the last portion of Nehemiah 2, and we, we looked at the planning and preparation stage of leadership, and, and, and just how brilliantly uh, Nehemiah did planning and preparation. Firstly, um, he went to see the reality, then he stated the problem, then he suggested a solution, then he showed why it's urgent. Then he, he, sh- he, 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 he showed God's involvement, and finally he, he shut out the, the opponents, um, but This time, we're not going to look at the planning and preparation phase. We're going to look at the execution and evaluation phase of the work uh, that they did. Um, So, who did the work, firstly? Um, It says in in, um, Nehemiah 2, verse 16, that uh, Nehemiah inspected the gate, and then it said he had not yet spoken to any of the others who would be doing the work. Okay, so who are these others who would be doing the work? Um, According to Derek Thomas... There are more than 40 groups and individuals, different, distinct groups and individuals mentioned in this text, who are involved in the work. And a massive wide variety. I think that's one of the first things that you notice when you go through this. You see the wide variety of kinds of people who are busy doing the work. Now remember, Jerusalem was the city of God. The equivalent in the New Testament is the church, the church of God, which is not a physical building. Even though we meet in physical buildings, the church itself is not a physical building. Um, And if you look at the New Jerusalem, which eventually will come down from heaven, uh, you'll see it's the place where God is, where God rules, and where God's people worship Him. Okay? So that's the the, the New Covenant equivalent of this. And in the church, we are supposed to have the same kind of striking variety of people from all different walks of life. Involved in building the city of God, the church of God. So let's just have a look at that. Firstly, it talks about Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priest in, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, who rebuilt the sheep gate and dedicated it. Okay? Um, now, firstly, the priests, and especially the high priest, would usually not have done this kind of what would have been considered menial work. But When it comes to building the city of God, everyone has to roll up their sleeves, everyone has to get their hands dirty, and everyone has to build. In fact, the priests are mentioned more often than anyone else building the walls of Jerusalem. Three times in this chapter, it mentions the priests building three different sections. Okay? And it's interesting, they they build the sheep gate and they dedicate it. They consecrate it. Now, what does it mean to dedicate or consecrate something? You always dedicate or consecrate something to someone or for some purpose, okay? Now, the Sheep Gate, let me just see if I have my map up here. I, I put a here's, a, here's sort of a, just a, I don't know if you can see it clearly, but just sort of a picture of, of Jerusalem, sort of a, a graphic um, redrawing of Jerusalem uh, in the time of, of Nehemiah, and you have the wider city that runs this sort of pink area and, and, and sort of green area, but this, the part of the city that, that they rebuilt, the walls, was just a smaller sub-area around there. That was the portion that they rebuilt, and it included the temple over here. So if you look at it from this angle, here's the temple, and here, here's the area, and, and, and this little map sort of shows... Um, Different, the different groups, some of the different groups. They didn't get everything right, but it shows some of the different groups that were building different sections of the wall, which is quite interesting. But if you look, the sheep gate, uh, let's see if I can find it now. Okay, I'll have to, here we go, sheep gate, it's over there. Okay, so the sheep gate was the gate which led into the temple, okay? And they called it the sheep gate because the thing that people mostly brought through this gate was sheep to sacrifice in the temple, okay? And then you can understand why the priests and the high priest dedicated that gate because that's where the sacrifice was brought in, into the temple. It was holy, you know? The dung gate, you know, I can understand why they didn't consecrate that because, you know, just stuff went out of the city through that gate, you know? But, but the sheep for sacrifice went in, you know? So you can understand why they dedicated the gate. Um, then it says in verse 2, the men of Jericho... Um, yeah, they are. They built a section next to the priests, the men of Jericho. And what's interesting to me is that quite a lot of people who live in Jerusalem are mentioned as building the walls, but quite a lot of people who didn't live in Jerusalem are also mentioned of, uh, as building the walls. So you have guys who could have easily said, listen, we don't live there. We don't have houses there. That's your problem. You rebuild that. But they saw it, they saw it as their city as well where their temple was where they could meet with God where they could bring sacrifices and they selflessly came and at quite a lot of um, danger to their own lives and quite a lot of cost to themselves they helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because they cared about the, the city of God they didn't just build for themselves and let me just mention a few groups um, it says the men of Jericho in verse 2, uh, the men of Tekoa in verse 5, then it says men from Gi- Gi- uh, Gibeon and Mizpah in verse 7, the residents of Zenoah in verse 13, um, then a, quite a few rulers from uh, Beth-Hakerim, uh, from Mizpah, from Beth-Zur, from Kailah, and the priests from the surrounding region in, in verse 22. So quite a lot of people who didn't live in Jerusalem and the, the, the principle there is when, when we're building the church of God we shouldn't just build in ways and in areas that benefit us directly we should be willing to build the church of God wherever it is and whether it benefits us directly or not that's how much we should care like the, the men of Jericho and the men of Tekoa and so on uh, for the church of God um Ashabiah, um, for example, uh, carried out repairs, it says in verse 19, for his district. In other words, these were the people of the different districts outside of Jerusalem sending a delegation to go and build the city. And these guys were leaders who built on behalf of their district, uh, who cared about the the city of Jerusalem. So even those who, who didn't live in the city went there on pilgrimage and sacrifice, and they saw it as their place to meet with God. And we should, we should, in a very real sense, we should take ownership of the church. As Christians, we should take ownership of the church wherever it is. Even though you are a member, you might be a member here in Shofar, in Randburg. we are just a small part of a very big church. And all the people in, those, in that church are our brothers and sisters. They, we're family. Okay? And in a very real sense, even though there are multiple congregations, there is only one church. And we should be praying for and blessing the church wherever we are. If you go on holiday to Hermanus, go and find a church there and go and bless it. Go and love the people there. They are as much the church as we are. And we should care as much about them and them, their welfare and their victory over darkness as we care about our own right here where we are. And we should if we get opportunities to build elsewhere, we should build elsewhere as well, just like the men of Jericho um, and Hashabaya, uh and those guys. So, so you know, like, like Hashabiah and his delegation who built the walls of Jericho, we want to officially say we send you. Whenever you come into contact with other Christians and other churches, you represent us <laughs> to build them. Because just like we are the church, they are the church, and God loves them as much as He loves us. And then it says many, indiv- uh, it, you know. Also, you, you'll notice that many individuals were um, were mentioned as building, um, especially sons. I mean, if you go and highlight the word "son," if you go through it, it says so and so, son of so and so, son of so and so, and this one, son of this one, built this section. So lots of sons are mentioned. But then there's an interesting little place. Uh, let me just maybe. Re- uh, there's an interesting little place in, um, I think it's in verse 11, is, is where it says, Shalom repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. So here's an interesting little uh, you know, cameo where, where you, I mean, obviously the women were working, but they were working supporting the men, making food, you know, making sure that the men are taken care of. But you have a guy, Shalom, and he doesn't ha- clearly doesn't have any sons who can help him do the work. But his daughters say, this is our city. This is our temple. This is our place for sacrifice. We have as much ownership of it as anyone else, any, any sons. We're going to jump in and do the work as well. And they get a special mention. Shalem, with his daughters, built a section of the wall. And if that was true under the old covenant with Nehemiah in terms of rebuilding Jerusalem, it is much more true under the new covenant, under Jesus Christ rebuilding the church. Ladies, <laughs> you have lots of scope to get involved. You can put on your hard hat, you can put on your, your steel-to-boots, <laughs> and you can get involved in God's construction project. You don't have to stand back for anyone. As, as, as it says, there's neither uh, Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ and we're all part of the church and we should all be involved in building the church. Yes, with different giftings and in different ways, not everyone in the same way, but everyone should be part of God's building project. No one should stand back and say, building the church is not for me. I am not allowed to build the church. All of us, God creates space for all of us to build the church. All of us should be, should make disciple makers if I can put it that way. Then, um, uh, not everyone did the same amount of building. I don't know if you noticed, it says, for example, the men of Tekoa in verse 5 and 27, they built two sections, two separate sections. The priest built three sections, like I mentioned. Uh, Benui, um, who was leading a group of Levites, built two sections, as did um, Hanan, uh, and uh, he built two sections. And uh, some others repaired um, only one section. Uh, Hanan, for instance, is mentioned with the residents of uh, Zenoa as having repaired 1,000 cubits of wall. It's this, this blue section over here. That's the longest section. So he gets a special mention, him and his team, as rebuilding the longest section. But he didn't only rebuild the longest section. He, built, he, he rebuilt the longest section and then he built another section. And and, and the principle we learn here is that all of us have different capacities. Not all of us have the same giftings. Not all of us have the same capacity. Some of us can do this much, and it doesn't look like much from the outside. But to God, He knows it's your best. And that's good enough for Him. But others can build the longest stretch and then some. And that is their best. And the point is, each of us should bring our capacity, each of us should bring our best as we rebuild the walls, as we uh, are part of God's construction uh, project. Um, Baruch, it says, zealously repaired, another section. Now, I'm not sure what the difference between building and zealously building is. I'm not sure how it looks, but it sounds like they were having quite a lot of fun, (laughs) and they were serious about building. (laughs) But, you know, if you're going to be busy with something like rebuilding the walls of the city of God, being part of God's construction project, building His church, remember Jesus says, I will build my church, and He builds in us and through us. And there's only one thing that Jesus actually says, that Scripture says that Jesus builds, and that's His church. It's us and every other Christian who believes in Jesus Christ. We are Jesus' plan A, and He has no plan B. We're it. (laughs) We're the way that He has chosen to reach this world. Okay? The church. And if we're involved in something so important, so important to Jesus that He says, I will build my church, should we not also zealously build (laughs) where He places us to build? I think we should. I think we should follow Baruch example. And just by the way, the name Baruch means blessed. When you say Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed be the name of the Lord. So the name Baruch means blessed. I don't know if there's a connection there, but anyway. We likewise should try and do as much. We, We should not try and do as much as others, but we should try and do as much as we can. So we shouldn't try and measure ourselves against other people and say, I want to do as much or more as so-and-so. And we shouldn't try and do as little as possible either. We should try and do as much as God has enabled us to do, has gifted us to do. You've heard probably the saying, he who is afraid to do too much will always do too little. And so often we are afraid to do too much, and then we end up doing too little. But like Baruch, we should zealously bold, not holding back. Okay. And then also note the variety of workers. I mean, you have priests, you have sons, you have daughters, you have rulers. Quite a few times it says the ruler of the half district of Jerusalem or of Kailah or something like that. Um, you have goldsmiths, you have merchants. At one place it says, it talks about a guy who's, who's one of the guards of, 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 of the Eastern Gate. Um, so guards, you have Levites, you have temple servants. For crying out loud, you even have perfume makers. <laughs> here are guys who, who appreciate the finer things in life, you know, and who, who like, you know, stuff to be clean and to smell nice and so on, and they got on their, 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 their hard hats and stuff, and they're getting their hands dirty, and they're rebuilding the walls. I mean, if perfume makers can rebuild the walls, then we really don't have any excuses, right? <laughs> um, so no matter what our day job is, we're all supposed to help rebuild the city of God. Doesn't matter whether you're a priest working in the temple or whether you're a goldsmith or a merchant working in commerce part of each of our calling is to rebuild the city of God to build to be, be used by Jesus to build God's kingdom in this world. So this is also a you know it's, it's such a beautiful picture of of what God intended for the New Testament church what is sometimes called every member ministry. If you think about, I think I actually have the scripture up here, if you think about Ephesians 4, it says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service. Um, I understand why they translated there as people. The, The literal word is the holy people or the saints. But you know, because of, you know, in, in terms of Roman Catholicism and so on, you get saints, you know. So people think of, you know, Mother Teresa, who has been sainted, or, or, um, you know, Saint Benedict, or Saint whoever, you know. And they think saints are people who are particularly holy. But that's not the biblical meaning of saints, right? The biblical meaning of saints is anyone who is in Christ Jesus, who is not, who, who is holy and consecrated to God by virtue of being in Christ. So if you are born again of the Spirit of God, if you belong to Christ Jesus by having His Spirit indwelling you, then you are a saint. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a saint. (laughs) Some of you are thinking, Annie, you don't know me. (laughs) (laughs) If you knew me, you wouldn't say I'm a saint. People, listen to me. That is the crux of the gospel. The crux of the gospel is that you are holy, not based on your performance, but based on his performance. That's why the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's good news about what Jesus did to save us from our sins. It's not good advice about what we must do to save ourselves from our sins by being good enough. Now, that doesn't mean that works don't matter. If you are loved and accepted and part of God's people and He's holy, notice, Holy Spirit lives inside of you, then His Holy Spirit is going to help you to overcome sin and He's going to make you holy as He is holy. But you don't have to wait until you're perfectly holy before you can be called a saint. That's the truth of the gospel. Okay? But it says here the, the fivefold, so called fivefold ministry, apostles and those kind of stuff are given not to do the work of ministry. That's, this word service here is translated in the older translations as, as ministry. But to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So my job is not to do the work of the ministry as a pastor. That's your job. <laughs> your job is to do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And we strongly believe in this truth, this principle, that every member is a minister. And leaders are just there to equip people to minister. So, so what, what we're doing today, if I can use a rugby analogy that my friend uh, Werner Joubert often uses, because he's a rugby coach, he says, this is just our team talk. When, when we get sent out of here, then we go and play. And we're going to win together as, as a team under Jesus' leadership. This is just a team talk. Okay, so every member is a minister. Um, and it says, to equip the saints for the work of service or work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. How, how does God do His construction project? He tells us here. He builds through every member just like He did with Nehemiah and his gang. Just one thing I, I want you to notice not, only not not only who's involved in the wide variety of people that are involved, but also note who's not involved. No professional builders are mentioned. No carpenters, no masons are mentioned. These were unskilled, ordinary people that God used by His grace to do ex- something ex- absolutely extraordinary. Can God do extraordinary things through ordinary people today still? Yes, still the same God. You might say, Okay, but I'm unskilled. I'm not I don't know enough. They were unskilled, they didn't know enough. And yet God used them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. If you can do that through them, you can reach the world through us. Amen. God does extraordinary things through ordinary people, just like us. So more than 40 different groups are used, Um, like I said, mostly unskilled, ordinary people, and, and they do something extraordinary together. What none of them would have been able to do separately, God uses them to do together. Just another thing, not only are no professionals mentioned, but in the whole chapter, Nehemiah himself is not mentioned. Isn't that interesting? He's the guy coordinating everything. But he puts all the spotlight on the people doing the work. He's he's organizing it he's leading it but he's not taking any credit for it contrast that to the guy who destroyed Jerusalem in the first place Nebuchadnezzar and read Daniel 4 verse 30 and it says you know Nebuchadnezzar boasts himself and he looks on on Babylon and said have I not built up this great Babylon with my own might and for my own majesty and a little while he goes crazy (laughs) a little while later he goes crazy Um, so who's doing the work? Who's doing this extraordinary work? Ordinary people, unskilled people, just like us. Every member is a minister. How are they doing the work? And this is very interesting, and I think you guys who like leadership and so on will, will love this. Maybe you enjoyed last week, you know, about the, the planning and preparation um, and how to do that. But, but here we're talking about execution and evaluation. Um, how how, how near uh, execu- uh, does execution and evaluation? And a few things that we learn. Number one is if you have a large project, if you have a large project that's, that's difficult to handle, break it up into bite-sized parts. Okay, I know, that's very obvious. <laughs> but the reality is so often we don't do it. So often we get so bogged down and so petrified by this big thing facing us that we just do nothing. We just procrastinate and we get nothing done. And what Nehemiah did was he said, this is too big for me, but I'm not going to be the one doing the work. The people are going to do the work to help them do the work. And he breaks it up into bite-sized portions. What's the old saying? How do you eat a whale? One bite at a time, right? One bite at a time. So, I mean, this this is obvious, but it's actually profound. If you're faced with a big project, how do you do it? You break it up into manageable portions. For example, now everyone who's part of the kingdom, every member... Every sheep, metaphorically speaking, needs to be shepherded, needs to be taken care of, needs to be pastored. But pastors, like me, cannot do all of that work. Well. How do we do it? We have small groups. We have leaders appointed. So we break the big church into smaller portions. And, and it's, you know, the, the church has been doing it since the early days. It says they met in the temple and from house to house. Paul preached publicly in Acts 20 and from house to house. And that's why a small group is so important to us. Is because we believe every member is a minister. And that's the place, one of the main places where you learn to minister to one another. Where we learn to minister to one another. Every member is a minister. And we believe that every person should be pastored. So, if you're not in a small group yet, give us the opportunity number one, to pastor you by being, slotting into a small group and being a regular member of a small group. And secondly, give yourself the opportunity to take part in more ministry. Allow to use your gifting to serve others and to bless others by being part of a, of a small group. Um, and it's interesting, each, quite a few times it's mentioned that people build close to their house, opposite their house or next to their house or so. Small groups are a great place to do that. You know, <laughs> you invite people to your house and you, you build where you are. Very powerful. We to us, small groups is a big deal. Okay. I, I really want you to get that. It, it's, it's, it's very much the heart of what we believe Christian ministry is about. In terms of discipleship, we believe, you know, if we can teach you to do three things, then we can teach you to make disciple-makers. If we can teach you to live the gospel, love people, and obey the Spirit. Then we're teaching you to make disciple-makers. Sunday services is is probably the main place where you learn to live the gospel. Small group is the main place where you learn to love the people, although you obviously learn to live the gospel and obey the Spirit there too. And then just getting involved in active ministry is is a great place to learn to obey the Spirit. All of those things you learn in church, but then we want you to go to your family, to your workplace, to your circle of friends, and to live the gospel, love the people, and obey the Spirit there as well. But unless you're in a small group, you're not allowing us to teach you that and to disciple you. So place us in a position to to, to disciple you. Secondly, he didn't only break it up into bite-sized portions, the, the big project. He delegated responsibility. Let um, me, in, in fact, put it differently. He distributed uh, the section sensibly. You know, people built opposite their houses. In other words, they built to, which was close to them. Now, this, this is just a very... Obvious, practical, you know, when you do projects like this, be practical, you know, and, and that's why you know, I have people like Rochelle and Izan in my life, because I'm not always that practical, but they are, you know, <laughs> and, you know, when, when people build close to their own house, opposite their own house, number one, they don't have to travel long distances, they can easily come home for lunch, <laughs> so you cut out a lot of, you, you make it just more effective, it's, it's a better use of time and more productive. But secondly, if people are building the wall opposite their own house, who knows that the, the quality of their building is going to be better? Because the safety of their family depends on it. So it's interesting to me how Nehemiah actually is very astute and knows human nature. On the one hand, he appeals to our better nature to work for the common good and build, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But then when he, when he assigns you know, places to work, he also understands, you know, that our human nature is fallen, and we tend to do what's in our best interest, our self-interest. And he uses that as well. See, the Bible's not naive about human nature. In fact, the Bible's more realistic and accurate when it comes to human nature than anything else out there. Um, then he delegates the responsibility to capable uh, group uh, group leaders. For example, let me, let me just read one. One portion in verse 17, is it verse 17 to 18. Yes. It says, "Next to him, and repairs were made by the Levites, the Levites under Rehem." So Rahem was the leader, and they were serving under him. Um, and then at another place it says, "The Levites under Benui." So in other words, he appoints capable sub-leaders to lead these task teams, these groups, building the different sections. And that's why you know, our vision is to reach nations and generations through disciple-making, leadership development, and church planting. We believe that all Christians should be developed into leaders who can lead other Christians because we need leaders to rebuild the walls. Um, how do you delegate well? Um, This is just sort of a by the way thing that that we often say. If you want to delegate well, you cannot just say to someone, there's the wall, go and rebuild it. They don't know how to do it. You've got to say it, you've got to show it, you've got to support them as they do it, and then you've got to send them to do it. Say, show, support, send. Don't just say it and send them. Say it, then show how they're supposed to do it. Tell them how to do it, say it. But then show them how to do it, then support them as they do it, and then send them to do it. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did with his disciples? I think so. Then fourth, um, coordinate the small bite-sized sections of the work into, into one whole. Note the repetition. Um, for instance, in verse 29 and so on, it says, next to them, so-and-so bolt. Next to him, so-and-so bolt. Next to him, another guy built. Next to them, another person built. So he made sure that he broke the, the project up into bite-sized portions, but then he linked them. He coordinated them. He made sure that they built next to each other and that they coordinated with one another. Okay? Um, <laughs> I almost want to th- say, you know you, you know that stereotypical example of the little stick and you take it and you break it easily, but if you take like two or three dozen of them and you bind them together, all of a sudden you can them now it's fine you know it'll be great if all of us do our little bit but unless what the little bits that we do are bound together are coordinated are linked together it still doesn't finish the job then um, they rec- we must record the results God does he says in Revelation I know your works God records the result, but Nehemiah records the result. And How do we know it? We're reading about it. <laughs> That's how we know he records the result. Um, so we know um, there's an old saying, you know, if you can measure it, you can manage it. Execution, if you record the results, then you can have evaluation and accountability, uh, and we, we should have that as well. So uh, why do they record so they could evaluate and celebrate all the progress? Now, we want to celebrate. We want to record what happens in the Church of God because we want to celebrate it. Why? Because what you celebrate, you propagate. What you celebrate, you propagate. What gets celebrated get, uh, what, what gets, celebrated gets re- repeated, and that's what we want as well. So now we looked at who, who's doing the work and how they're doing the work, but now we're getting to the really important part. Why are they doing the work? Why are they doing the work? Now, there's an immediate reason and an ultimate reason why they, they built. The immediate reason for the repairs is, you know, to prevent danger and disgrace. It says they rebuilt the walls, the gates, the towers, um, and they had an armory for protection. All of those are protective measures. So, to, to protect from danger. Um, and in, in, in Nehemiah 3 verse 1 and 2 verse 17, it talks about rebuilding so that they no longer be in disgrace. So, th- those are the, the immediate reasons to, to protect against Um, danger and disgrace but there's actually more ultimate reasons um, why it was why they built but ultimate reasons which they themselves didn't necessarily even know of in other words God is able to do things through us that as we build his city that we're not even aware of I just want to mention a few Um, and this is just the, the tip of the iceberg firstly we build to put God and his work on display They didn't know it when they rebuilt the wall of the pool of Siloam. But a few hundred years later, Jesus would do a miracle there. I just want to read it to you. It says, and he went along and saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Just by the way, you know, I think so often we as the church have the theology around healing of Jesus' disciples. If there's sickness, there must have been sin. Someone must have sinned. And, and, and this scripture says, Jesus says, neither he nor his parents sinned. So, sometimes, sin, uh, you know, sickness comes from sin. But we cannot say it always comes from sin. And then, then, then look at what it says. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, uh, we must do the works of him who sent uh, sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Um, And then uh, it it says, saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it into the man's eye. Go, he said to him, and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Interesting. So the man went and washed, came home seeing. Can you see what happens here? It's interesting. I mean, even the building metaphor of building with, you know, physical materials, Jesus mixes ground with spit to make mud, you know, to metaphorically rebuild this guy's eyes, to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which Nehemiah had rebuilt. Why do we build the church? To create a space where God, the work of God can be put on display. Even if we don't, I mean, this happens Hundreds of years. Of, they could not have anticipated this. You don't know what God is going to do with what you, the effort you put in to build his church. You don't know. But the works of God are going to be put on display. More, you know, another one is, notice that the temple, he talks about the temple servants in, in chapter 3, verse 26 and 31. And in, in chapter 2, Nehemiah 2, verse 8, It actually mentions the temple near the citadel. And it also mentions the palace in verse 25. Um, Let me see if I can find it. Um, The upper palace. The ESV translated the upper house of the king. So the temple were there, the house of God, and the house of the king was there. And it's interesting, one of the names that appears over and over again, in fact, I counted three times, but they're not the same person, but but the name appears three times, if I can just find it here, is Malkijah, there we go. There's one of them, Melchijah. The name Melchijah is mentioned three times. Now, Melek means king, and Jah means, is the shortened version of Yahweh. So Malkajah probably means Yahweh is king or something like that, which was a very common name in those days. And the reason why I mentioned that is you have the temple where God is enthroned upon the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim, and then you have the house of the king. The human king is enthroned on his throne. But Israel, as that name al reflects, has always been longing for a time when God will be king. But how can God be king and anoint a human king, a descendant of David at the same time? Well, Jesus is the answer to all riddles, the gospel. In Jesus Christ, God himself becomes the human king to rule the city of God. So here they, they're rebuilding the walls. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. But the house of the king is empty. The king who's ruling over Judah and over Jerusalem is Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Until the rightful king came walking along and said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. But even then, even then, you couldn't fully enter into his rulership. Not not, not in, in in the physical sense of the word. He was a king, but what did his subjects do? They placed a crown of thorns on his head, and instead of giving the house of the king, they crucified him outside of the city. And he willingly allowed that to save his people. You see, and you know I want to close with this. Not only is he the king who wore the crown of thorns on behalf of his people. But he's the Lamb of God and with a triumphal entry when they, when they sang blessed be the name of the Lord blessed is he who sent in the name of the Lord Jesus would have entered Jerusalem and the temple through the sheep gate that Elisha uh, and his, the high priest and his priests dedicated and here you have the Lamb of God walking through the sheep gate intending to sacrifice himself to be the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices So that the people of God no no longer have to be slaves, not only to King Artaxerxes from Persia, but that they no longer have to be slaves to Satan, and no longer have to be slaves to their own sin. Full freedom. And then it's interesting, I I must read you this. Sorry, I know I'm a little bit over time, but I'm going to close with this one. Isaiah 32, this is just so beautiful to me. Remember at the end of Luke, Jesus says to his disciples, But remain in the city. What city? Jerusalem, the very city that Nehemiah and them rebuilt, until you are endowed with power from on high. And in, in verse 14, it says, The fortress will be abandoned. This is um, Isaiah 32, verse 14. Israel's under exile. The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city of Jerusalem deserted. The citadel and watchtower, which we read about, uh, will become a wasteland forever. The light of donkeys, a pasture. Of, for flocks, And then it says in verse 15 of Isaiah 32, Till the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. When it says there, the watchtower, it's, it's translating that, that same word, of, ofel, that we read in there. The very watchtower that is mentioned in Nehemiah 3. They were rebuilding not only a place to put the work of God on display, not only a place where the Son of God can come and sacrifice Himself, walking through the Sheep Gate as the Lamb of God to sacrifice Himself on the cross outside the city, but they were building a place where the Spirit of God can be poured out and be distributed from there throughout all the world, throughout all the earth. You don't know what God is doing through you when He uses you to build His church. You don't know. And neither do I. I just want you to close your eyes. and I just want you to firstly thank God that you are not like any other Christian that has made you unique with unique strengths and unique weaknesses. And, and I just want you to say, God, help me to make peace with who you have made me and what you have given me. Just in your own words. Yes, Lord, we confess that sometimes we are too impressed with our own strengths and too intimidated by our own weaknesses. Lord, but we have strengths because you're gracious to us and you've given them to us. And we have weaknesses so that we will need one another. And so we realize our need for one another and for you. And we just accept both the strengths and the weaknesses you've us. And thank you that you use us to bold, Lord, even though we are unskilled, even though we are ordinary people, that you do extraordinary things in us and through us. And we just consecrate ourselves and dedicate ourselves to your service. Please use us. Please use our strengths. Please use what you have given us in Jesus' name. Please give us the grace to do what you have called us to do. As your eyes are closed, I just want you to, in your own words, just consecrate yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, use me in whatever way you want to. Use me to build where you have placed me. Yes, Lord God, we don't want to be like the nobles of the men of Tekoa who would not stoop down to serve the Lord, their Lord. Lord, when, they, when, when, the, when the rest of the men of Tekoa were, were so diligent that we built two sections of wall, but their nobles weren't willing to serve, we don't want to be like them, Lord. We want to be like the rest of those who served under Nehemiah. But knowing that we serve under a leader who is so much greater than Nehemiah, who gave his life for us, who gave his spirit to us, and uses us to do much more than we think we are capable of. And Lord, I just speak that blessing over each one of your children this morning in Jesus' name. Bless them and Lord, surprise them with the extent to which you use them for your glory. In Jesus' name.